Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am wild about all kinds of fairies, black and blue and raz and straw and red. But most of all, I like to guzzle cherries. <laughs> Me too. And I eat them every night in bed. I like to eat. I like to eat. I like. Hey, hey, you're listening to Let's Eat In. <laughs> Yeehaw. Yeehaw. This is your host, Kathy Airway. And uh, that was just my new theme song called uh, I Like to Eat. No, I Love My Fruit by the Sweet Violet Boys. And uh, I had to change it because uh, the Everly Brothers, uh, Kathy's Clown, is copyrighted. Who knew? And we can't do that. So uh, thanks to my guest today who brought this wonderful mix CD from a friend of his, uh, Robert Sietzema. We got a new song. Thank you. Thanks yes, so much for joining, too. I'm so too. glad to have been the <laughs> vessel through which it was conducted. I was, I was racking my brains over that. What am I going to do? Do I sing a song? I yeah, this friend it. of mine, Charlotte Walton, who works for uh, Merge Records, she collects old oddities, and she's obsessed with food, like all of us are, and mm-hmm. she's made three compilations like that of kind of old-timey food songs. So, so fun. So shout out to Charlotte. All right. Thank you. Um, so, Robert, um, if, if anyone doesn't know uh, who this food expert is, uh, Robert Sietema is the longtime food critic for The Village Voice. That's right. I've been there since 1993, and um, I'm sitting here in my coffin, kind of like <laughs> talking to you. No, um, it's, been, it's been wonderful to be in that kind of job for so long because... Mm-hmm. I've seen so many changes in food. I've seen yeah. food go from being kind of a minor nuisance to being a front and center obsession that just millions of people share. So, and that's going to eventually go away. So maybe I'll still be at The Voice when nobody gives a crap <laughs> about food back. anymore. Yeah, And we're just eating energy bars to stay alive. I know, or pills. Remember, that was always on the Jetsons. They were always like eating A powder shake and, Yeah, morning. yeah. Um, no, but you you wear uh, you walk you maintain a very low profile as far as um, other very you know esteemed uh, food experts go, and I, I don't know one food writer that doesn't look up to your work. As, oh, that's as, so nice of you to say, yeah. but probably untrue. But uh, at any no. rate, yes, I, I try not to um, not to cut a, a wide swath. And I'm try st- I try to stay anonymous in restaurants mm-hmm. because my whole purpose is to see what the normal person gets to eat there. And uh, I think too many critics enjoy being critics so much and want to be recognized. And, you know, it's the cult of the micro-celebrity that you want everyone to recognize you or whatever. But as a former Midwestern boy, I'd rather not be recognized. Yeah. You know, because if somebody's paying for you to eat and paying for your food, why would you want people to shower you with free crap? Uh And that's what happens, you know, if you're a recognized critic or food writer people bring all this stuff to the table and then you have to smile and eat it and pretend that it's good and that you it's, like it it's you know awkward. And yeah it's yeah. very awkward because then and this is why they do it because then you can't you know yeah be critical about the food later if you've eaten all this free food and everything so because so, they got the goods on you so for that reason i know a few restaurateurs or friends of mine i won't mention names that are deathly afraid that you might walk into their door one day. yikes because you're not going to... Well, because I might have an assault smile. rifle or something. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're going to just cut them no. up, tear them apart. No. 
Um, but uh, so, so what are your latest food obsessions? Um, um, I am obsessed with the northern Chinese food that's worked mm-hmm. its way into Flushing over the last five years. Uh, I've been going to a Dongbei place, of which there's four of them. That represents the, the far northeast of China, uh, squeezed, sandwiched between North Korea and Russia with Mongolia a stone's mm. throw away. So this is, it used to be called Manchuria, but it's just this amazing food. You just, if you put somebody down in front of it who was not in you know, well versed in this in cuisine. Food, yeah. yeah, they would they would say, Oh, that's not Chinese food. There's right. no way that's Chinese food because they got like succotash. They're oh, eating wow. corn up there with pine nuts and like chili lamb. peppers. Yeah, uh, and lamb yak. all over the place. No not a speck of rice in sight. You know, oh, they have different kinds yeah, of bao. A lot of which come from Tianjin, which is the big uh, kind of like grain elevator. It looks just like it's on the Great mm-hmm. Lakes or something, like it's Sault Ste. Marie. Big grain elevators, and they're bringing in the grain, and they're making stuff out of wheat, including, of course, like wheat noodles and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like if you've been to any of those places from Xi'an, like Xi'an Famous Foods, they got a lot of wheat noodles and stuff there, So and, and virtually no rice. Yeah, that so. grows in the warmer climates. Yeah. So is it, you're such a, a you know astute follower of authentic uh, Chinese cuisines and all sorts of cuisines, really. What do you think of the latest trend in sort of fusiony Asian uh, references and nods? You, you recently had a review about Mission Chinese food, noting some of the interesting twists there, which it yeah, sounded I, like you enjoyed. I was stoked to hate it. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, because... Part of my career is based on trying to find the most authentic examples of right. cuisines from all over the world, which is what New York is good for. I mean, that's why we live here, because there's so many different kinds of people. A lot of them, like the other Midwesterners I know, kind of newly off the boat, mm-hmm. uh, trying to find a, you know, a taste of home, trying to recreate things here. And even that's an interesting topic in itself. But, but you know, we're, we're getting beyond that now, because just like all the other earlier forms of food from Sweden, from Germany... From France. Early Chinese food, of course, mm-hmm. made its mark, you know. Um, but, you know, all those things are becoming assimilated, and the American palate is getting broader and broader, and things that you think are exotic and foreign are soon going to be, you know, in the hamburger helper aisle. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing how these things are transformed. So one of the good things was that uh, people get interested in these cuisines, and they dive into them, and then they remake them. And remaking isn't always bad because sometimes when you remake something, it's just as good. That's the way I feel about Mission Chinese is that this guy who, you know, he's technically Korean. That's Danny Bonian. You know, but he like grew up in Oklahoma. So he's like more an Oklahoman and an American than he is Korean. Yeah. And he's not even making Korean food. I mean, although the food has Korean influences, I mean, so he's he's uh, he dived into Szechuan cuisine and related kind of Chinese cuisines, but then remade them. And he remade them using kind of local ingredients. So he's like taking some of our obsessions, which are for like local and seasonal and mm-hmm. organically produced produce. And he then kind of remakes the Chinese food using those sorts of things. And really, if the food had been invented here, people would have been using local, locally sourced things. So True. rather than using some palate example of vegetables and meats and stuff that are not as good as they are back in China, he's using our local stuff to remake these dishes. And there, in, authenticity is not even a question. The question is, is the food good? Mm-hmm. And it is. Uh, and one of the real things that he's doing there, though, is getting 
people accustomed to levels of spice that they've never had before. <laughs> Americans are, aside from regional groups of people down in Texas and stuff like that, in Cajun country, people are notoriously tender-tongued in the United States. But, you mm -hmm. know, as soon as 10 years ago when salsa replaced ketchup as our favorite condiment, all of a sudden people are like interested in food and so he's like ramping that up i mean have right. you've been to christian <clears throat> chinese yeah the food is hot as hell what did you think about it some of it was pretty hot some you know i think there was a good range yeah yeah but the way he makes mapo tofu instead of using some canned oh, bean product he's like making his own kind of fava bean paste that he then ferments i mean Correct me if I'm wrong on the way he does this, but then he like he is yeah, into he, that chili oil. He said he oil. went to Chengdu to a to a uh, dojang. Uh what's it called, Dobenjang Factory, and learned right, how right. they do it. Supposedly, so. my friend Lillian Chu, who used to be a food editor at Gourmet uh, that I've known for years, she was the one that took him on the oh, tour. cool. I mean, she, decide, she up and decided she was moving back to China <laughs> after a couple generations of living here. No, just because she wanted to do it. Oh, she I said, see. well, I'm Chinese. <clears throat> I'm going to really be Chinese now. So she That's went cool. back to China. And, uh, and she seems happy there, although it's hard for me to imagine being so uprooted and mm. you know because she she was born in brooklyn and grew up in in new jersey so oh, crazy yeah so uh, what do you think about when people go to places that are uh taking a cuisine to the next level and reinventing it so so to speak and and saying oh yeah i know all about sichuan cuisine or yeah uh, oh yeah i went to momofuku noodle bar so i know all about japanese food or i don't know if anyone would ever say that but right, right. what what do you think about that whereas that's your only reference point for the cuisine all I can say is that people uh, learn more and more and mm -hmm. that like going to Mission Chinese might make you interested in sure. the two dozen other amazing Szechuan restaurants that there now are in Manhattan. You know, I mean, this the hunger for exotic foods, for eating outside your comfort range has just been fantastic in the last few years. I mm -hmm. mean, I just, it's so gratifying that people are really interested because to me, it's like a left-wing act. I mean, to meet immigrants on their own terms, mm -hmm. to go respectfully into a restaurant where you don't maybe understand the food, but you're interested. It's like, it gives them a chance to shine. It gives them a chance to show you where they came from and what they eat. And it gives you a preview of what's going to be in your larder, you know, right. in like five or 10 years True. or something. So. There was an interesting article. I'm sure. I'm sure we've probably hacked this topic to the, the bloody pulp, but um, <laughs> by Francis Lamb and Eddie Huang about how you know maybe it's a little disrespectful, or maybe it's not like ideal to have these uh, cuisines cooked by non uh, members of that community uh, that that they're authentic to. Well, Dad, yeah, this this is something that when I first started working at The Voice, this was like a big dispute. Mm -hmm. Can a, a white guy from the Midwest and from Texas uh, go into a, a restaurant and really understand the food and write about it? Isn't that inherently disrespectful? And the conclusion, <laughs> thank God, that they came to was that not at all. I mean, as a matter of fact, I often depend upon people from other countries to explain things about the food to me. And my experience is that people that come from other countries often only know the food from the area that they came from. Uh -huh. And places like China have like a hundred cuisines. 
So Hundreds. if you're going to ask a Chinese immigrant what the cuisine is, if they're from Dongbei or they're from Fujian or they're from Guangdong, I mean, they're going to have an answer that's like wildly different. So, um, no, I think that, you know, that it is good. Anything that mixes up the cultures. Right. You know, and, and by the way, this thing with Mission Chinese, this is a harbinger of other things to come. I think that you're going to have a lot of cuisines that are newly arrived in the United States or newly renewed by immigrants. You're going to find them like bistroized in interesting <laughs> ways. And yeah. you're only the only kind of like floating log you can grab onto, you know, is is the food good? Right. And if it's good, then, then I'm all it's for good. It. Yeah. You know, I was recently at this place called Little Cerro. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's in Washington D.C. and uh, it's just it's fantastic. It's Thai food. It's Isan food, but once again, Isan food that's been reverently recreated by American visitors to Isan, who then turn around and use like all of our local and sustainable foods. So you get non-traditional things. But the food is presented in such a, you know, a perfect and straightforward way. Like, they start the meal out with pig skin and a fish dip in this giant basket of herbs mm. and lettuces. And there's like those barbershop barber pole beets mm-hmm. cut really thin. You wouldn't find those in Isan. Okay. But somehow they just work with the fish dip. And because they're so fresh and so crunchy and so beautiful, it's like... It's almost like a greater reverence than to try to recreate, oh, you know, course. a collection yeah. of like seven things that they always dip in their fish sauce there. Mm-hmm. You know, so you get food that's even more exciting. And the people that go there might go there where they, maybe they wouldn't go to an Isan restaurant in Elmhurst or something, you know, and they just they become electrified. Right. And on top of that, they get a new reverence for the cultures that are streaming into the United States. Although, unfortunately, not so much after the downturn of the American economy. We're seeing less new cuisines than we were, fewer um, new cuisines than we were like 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, we'll see where that goes. But you're right, like slowly and surely food, food is evolving and people are becoming more educated. Perhaps. Yeah. I find myself doing this a lot when when in a uh, recipe, like say in my Thai cookbook or so forth, uh, comes with all these strange uh, not that easy to access ingredients mm-hmm. i just substitute yeah as you should yeah you i mean know? why hunt down canned water chestnuts and right when you can be using something from around something, here which yeah. is just i mean it makes a world of difference yeah so yeah that just, almost is more reverent toward the cuisine to like make it as exciting yes. as you possibly can and then you can still taste that flavor and you can still experience Chinese food or whatever it is that you're making yeah without yeah, the canned the people. Chungking canned bean sprouts you know I remember the oh, palate no. version of Chinese food that was available when I was a kid I mean everything was out of cans and uh-huh. yes it was yep. technically authentic except that Nobody the vegetables were that. not doing what they did in back in the home country. I mean, mm-hmm. they were like be, just lying there limply. <laughs> Whereas, you know, you eat a bean sprout or something like that or a water chestnut in China. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know. My mom very quickly learned to substitute stuff like spinach in her dumplings instead of Napa cabbage if she couldn't find it. And so yeah, when, when I was weird. one of the first 
times I realized this, I was um, going to Cuba to try to hunt down Cuban Chinese. Oh, yeah. I'd eaten Cuban Chinese food on the Upper West Side Side and in Chelsea. And, well, like 15 years ago, it was much more vital. There were places all over the place. They're almost all gone. they're kind of dying off. That's because by their nature, the Cuban Chinese people became further assimilated and lost their Cuban and Chinese characteristics. But back in Cuba, it was considered one of the few kind of tourist traps, and the government left Chinatown alone in Havana. Mm. And uh, and because Cuba has always had this kind of anti-racist agenda, uh, you know, and they didn't discriminate against Chinese people and stuff. The Chinese who arrived there as indentured sugar, servants in the twenties, yeah. they kind of let let them alone. And they intermarried with the African and the Latin heritage people. And so there are almost no people that even look slightly Chinese. So anyone that looks just slightly Chinese, they kind of push them in front of the restaurants there. (laughs) But the point I was getting to is that they didn't have bean sprouts or anything like that. So they made up substitutes. For example, instead of using bean sprouts, they, among bean sprouts, they, uh, they, carefully sliced up uh, cucumbers Ooh, into matchsticks yeah. that were crispy and they were like bean sprouts Perfect. and you know and you found and instead of soy sauce they used magi which uh-huh. they could get they couldn't get soy sauce at that time they probably do now but and they yeah. built this Chinatown with the arches and you know and kind of dragons and stuff and, awesome I bet it tasted great too. oh it was just fantastic I mean because they were they didn't have they weren't subject to the rationing mm-hmm. that uh, makes the rest of the people in Cuba basically eat just a diet of black beans and pork fat and white rice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so they were actually kind of making things with fresh pork and stuff, and they had farm, you know, meat, meat markets there where they had, like, pigs hanging up. In other words, the government wanted to kind of preserve whatever Chineseness was still hmm. there. So Fascinating. Yeah. Sounds like a good trip. Um, so let's uh, cut to a quick little musical break sure. that uh, Robert chose, and we'll be right back with more. On to the ball game, everything is fine. Someone sets behind you, nearly drives you out of your mind. Crunch, 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 the rattle of a sack. Someone knocks a homer and it goes all Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Your baby's right beside you and love begins to grow. Crunch, 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 hair rises on your head. You can't hear the movie and I wish that I was dead. I'm going
that was a hilarious number called I Like Popcorn. Um, I'm sorry. I Hate Popcorn by... Excuse me. Just finishing some pizza here. Um, <laughs> by Big Bill Schaefer. Thanks for that uh, musical suggestion. Sure. Um, so we were just talking about authentic uh, cuisines and exploring them. And I know, Robert, you love to travel to actually explore them and become better acquainted. Um, and uh, lately, your daughter Tracy has been exploring all throughout South America and telling uh, tales about what food she's eaten. Are you vicariously eating throughout this trip? I, I am, but oddly enough, the food has not been that great on the trip. Mm -hmm. uh, what she's doing is that her and her uh, boyfriend, who likes to be known only as A, <laughs> he's a little off the grid, uh, incredible guy, they are traveling from San Francisco, the mission where they live, down to Tierra del Fuego at the very tippy-tip bottom of South America. Amazing. Uh, they scheduled the trip for four months. Uh, it doesn't sound like it would take that long, except a lot of the roads are not that good. Um, and uh, they're driving all the way. They're in an old Toyota that's already had a couple of wrecks and stuff. And it mm -hmm. kind of looks like it's kind of like covered with dust, three inches thick. And, and uh, you know, and they thought they would be, they're both kind of like foodies. Mm -hmm. And so they thought they would be in kind of food paradise. But the fact of the matter is, if you're traveling like that, you know, and you're stopping in cities and towns and villages... You know, a lot of the restaurants where you think that look like restaurants here, where you might just like go in and eat a complete meal, they're not that good and there's no other people in them. So, mm. you know, it's like you are suddenly like a profit center and you're in there like for hours and they're bringing pallid versions of the food that uh, that's served locally. So as they've gone through every one of these countries successively, they were in... They were in Mexico for almost a month. It took almost forever. Mm -hmm. Then they went through Guatemala, and they've been in uh, Honduras, and then they went to, uh, where did they go next? Panama. And um, they're finding that there's Walmarts everywhere. Really? All over the world. They stop in the Walmarts. They get power bars. They eat those for breakfast. And then they mainly eat street food. Uh -huh. And the street food has been fantastic in some places and not in other places. Like when you go and get food in Colombia, apparently, the emphasis is all on starches, so a meal might have like a little tiny piece of meat, and then it'll have yucca, huh. and rice, and potatoes, and French fries, and it's really? just like yeah, all of these just because most of the to world, fill you like up, you know, yeah. nobody can afford to be a carbophobe in Colombia, <laughs> um, and you know, and they've they just some of the scenery that they've seen, and they've you know put it on all sorts of like uh, blog posts is just fantastic. And yeah, you can actually if you want to follow what she's doing. Um, She's at Where's Tracy, uh, that's Where's, W-H-E-R-E-S, Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, dot blogspot.com, Where's Tracy, cool. dot blogspot.com, and, uh, and it's just, it's filled, the most interesting thing about it is it's filled with all this practical stuff, like you were driving down the road, like, where the hell do I sleep, and mm -hmm. all these weird stories about, like, going into these kind of hostels and having the... The people that run the place lock them in overnight so you can't get out or something as if you're, you shouldn't escape. Or maybe they're locking you in because they're afraid. <laughs> yeah, but maybe. They went with all of this camping equipment but quickly discovered that they didn't feel comfortable camping in most of the contexts. People I mean, don't really camp. It's just the, the size of South America, of Peru, just gigantic. And they ended up on the seacoast of Peru. You know, in the, it's winter down there, so uh -huh. all the places that would have been beach resorts are now kind of like empty, and they're just driving through these empty towns with the towering mountains in the background, and 
Uh, today they're actually in Machu Picchu. Their uh, friend of Tracy's is actually living in Cusco. Hmm. Uh, both of them, I think, worked for Google. Tracy worked for Google for five years, and uh, her boyfriend worked somewhere else for a few years. And they saved up enough money to do this. So, wow. Uh, yeah. That's so cool. And when you go down there uh, to meet her, are you going to write oh, yes. about this uh, uh, anywhere? Or? I think I will. I yeah. mean, I'm, uh, me and my wife Gretchen are going down to... Um, to meet them in Buenos Aires in okay. about three weeks, and uh, that's awesome. And we're really looking forward to it. And yeah. she has an old high school friend that lives there too. So, speaking of really traveling, fun. do you do you try to you know kind of like write? Um, do you try to travel to write, or do you try to not? <laughs> I guess I, um, I find it. Whenever I travel, yeah. I exploit the traveling because yeah. seeing new things, you're just so excited mm-hmm. about writing about them. Uh, you know, if you really like to write about food, you, might as well. um, you just you want to do it. I mean, it's just you're suddenly exposed to new stuff. Like, I just went to Washington uh, D.C., where uh, Fork in the Road, our blog at uh, at the Village Voice, uh, just won an award as the best blog in the country for this awesome. year. Congrats! And I went to thank you. I went to uh, to accept the award on behalf of my fellow bloggers, and uh, it was just like so much fun to be in Washington, D.C. The food there is just amazing, whereas like 10 years ago, it was, it was not nothing. that remarkable. Yeah, so Cool. I just, I just spent, I only went to half of the meetings at this food conference from the Association of Food Journalists, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I just went and uh, went to half of the sessions, and the rest of the time I was just like racing around town, eating like <laughs> eating amazing like crazy. things. Yeah, I find it, you know, it's, it's a good way to travel and write because there's not too many publications that are going to pay you to to travel for a story these days it's true although uh you recently uh were featured in a piece in lucky peach magazine about your american road trip oh that that was was a fun fun one yeah yeah Yeah, it was uh it was peter meehan's idea Mm -hmm. and uh he and jonathan gold and i got together in kansas city and uh, and we were there for like three days. We just we ate in twenty two places. We just uh, I was driving the car because I was kind of the chauffeur, <laughs> and um, and we just went from place to place and we ate all of the. We began one of the reasons we picked Kansas City was that's that's where Calvin Trillin came from, and he you know famously said that the Arthur Bryant's mm-hmm. was the very best restaurant in the world. Kind of tongue okay. in cheek, but you know, <laughs> illustrating the that? thing that yeah, that you know, where you come from, that's the best food. That right. was the the point at that, and that was true at that time. Now it's kind of like you want everyone else's food, mm-hmm. but um, but so we we hit all the places that he had mentioned in his tummy trilogy, and continued in that vein. Yeah, we went to old time diners. We went to all these different barbecue places. There's supposed to be a hundred barbecues in uh, Kansas City. We only went to about seven or eight of them, but yeah. still, it was just, it was so eye-opening, because this is, it's like a, t- a city that time forgot. Yeah, you that know, was a really cool piece. It was so much, oh, thank you so much. It was, uh, Peter was there with his uh, iPhone, uh-huh. and he just recorded all of the conversations on the iPhone, and then somebody who works for Lucky Peach transcribed them. <laughs> just, you know, probably 30 Crazy. hours of conversation, yeah. and he just cut it down to just the stuff that was vaguely interesting or whatever so this kind of reminds me of like something about the road trip uh vein of it it reminds me of something like a a modern day like hunter s thompson like 
Journalism. It was definitely like that. I mean, we got a pocket flask early on in the trip, and we like filled it up with some like Kentucky whiskey. Was it called screwball journalism? What? No, something. Screwball journalism. That's a good from your lips to God's ears. There's a a word for it. I can't remember what it is. Yeah, it was. It was definitely. But food related. It was so much fun. Food is the new drugs. And Jonathan Gold had just started his new job at the um, at the L.A. Times. Oh, so right. He was kind of like on the phone with his uh, <laughs> with his editor there and stuff. So it was just That's it was cool. hilarious. And we were eating fried chicken. And we were eating barbecue and nice and going to bars in the evening. It was just it was like three months of life compacted mm. into three days. That sounds pretty yeah. fun. So I know that um, you. Yeah, with that, as many places as you eat out at, you also are a very good home cook. Yes, so. I am, and I love to eat at home. Yeah, and you often go to the green market all the time, and and at least bump four into, days a week. At least four, yeah, yeah Union Square. Why not? It's there. Um, so tell me, what is the latest favorite uh, date meal worthy recipe dish, something or other thrown together on the fly that you like to make? Oh, that's a good question. I would say um, summer squashes are something that are so exciting, and they're there during so much of the summer. you got the squash blossoms. Uh, What I do with them sometimes is I will take uh, squash. I'll get as many different kinds of squash as I can. The patty pan, the, you know, the... Crookneck. Crookneck, the the summer squash. Yeah. Yeah, the ones with the ridges, the ones without the ridges, the green ones, the the yellow ones. ones. And I... I cut them up. Well, this is one of my favorite techniques that I've never heard described before is random cutting. There's no such thing as random in nature, but you can try to reproduce it by cutting some thin, some thick, cutting them sideways, cutting slivers, cutting big chunks. I throw that in a pan with really good olive oil and crushed garlic cloves. I cook that until the thin pieces get crispy and everything is like cooked. Mm-hmm. And then I throw some like heirloom tomatoes in. You can get heirloom tomatoes really cheap if you get the ones totally that are in the like bag. that. Yeah, the ones that are like almost turned into soup already. And you throw those <laughs> in, and you you cook them up and put in some salt, and you just have this amazing dish where the eggplant's crispy and the tomato is cooked down. You mean zucchini or summer squash is crispy? Yeah, summer squash. Excuse me. Yes, eggplant. You could throw eggplant in there. You too, could. Yeah. That sounds like a very yeah. cool two ingredient uh, yeah. ratatouille of sorts. Yeah, it's great. Except you're except it. it's not just like limp and no. and watery it's really because you've ori- originally cooked all of the different squashes in the olive oil they get crispy and some mm-hmm. of them are almost blackened they're browned and, and that must be fun to see how yeah. the different varieties uh, taste and look and well the, one yeah. of the neat things it's one of those dishes that are so valuable to the host that because uh, you can cook them up ahead of time and serve them room temperature and they're yeah, every bit yeah. as good. If you oh, want to, throw yeah. some anchovies in there and kind of send mm-hmm. it in a kind of fishy Italian direction. But I just like the the taste of the summer squash, kind of like. I'll make that anytime for a date. Yeah. Yeah, well, perfect. Yeah. Here you go. Yeah, squash. And the fact that every piece is a different shape and size, it will drive the anal retentives out of their minds. And I mean, just by virtue of how fresh and delicious they are right now. Yes, and, and cheap. Yeah, and cheap, I know. And you can do it with the hippie squashes, too, that you used to have to consign just to stuff with brown rice because they're so What's the hippie big. squashes? Well, it used to be that hippies would take, would grow the squashes to the length of like, <laughs> small automobiles. And then the only thing you can do with a squash that big is usually is just cut it and stuff it with cheese and brown rice or something. I see. So, I you've, see. You've never made that before? No. Not even in secret? 
Well, I, I've <laughs> stuffed little baby summer squashes before. That stuffed squashes are good, but hasn't somebody given you like some hilariously big squash they were so proud of, and you said, "Well, you should have picked that sucker about like three months <laughs> ago." <laughs> no, I guess not. Yeah, I need to get more crazy hippie friends. All right. I guess that's about all the time we have for today, but that was a fun conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I think this Thanks is so much my for coming fifth on again. This is, a, on this is yeah, it's been a few. All right, so that's our show for today. That's our new theme song. Thanks to Robert Tietzema, Village Voice critic of and uh, award-winning, uh, <laughs> you know, blogger for Fork in the Road. Check that out. Check out his latest work. And uh, thanks everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week. <laughs> I am wild about all kinds of fairies Black and blue and red Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website Or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>